0: Okay, if you will please stand once again and uh, open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 9. As we read our text this evening, Psalm chapter 9. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word, and you would do well to give it your full attention. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known, he has executed judgment, the wicked are snared in the work of their own hands." The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, let the nations be judged before you, put them in fear, O Lord, let the nations know that they are but men. As far the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. Psalm 9 is a psalm of David. He is the one responsible for composing this psalm. And I've mentioned on more than one occasion that the titles to the psalms are not part of Holy Scripture. They are not original to it and therefore not inerrant Holy Scripture. But some have suggested that the title... Muth Laben, you you see that uh, there perhaps in your translation, Muth Laben, which translates "death of the son," is describing the death of the champion son of the Philistines, namely Goliath, or or perhaps even Gath. And so they say that it is about David's victory over Goliath. Now others say that the title was merely the name of a tune. And has nothing to do with any of David's victories. Uh, this psalm clearly, I mean, if you just look at the context of it, it clearly concerns a victory that David experienced at the hand of God. Whether it was his victory over Goliath or another victory of his, we don't know for sure. Charles Spurgeon uh, liked to assume that it was about his victory over Goliath. He said, Believing that out of a thousand guesses, this is at least as consistent with the sense of the psalm as any other, we prefer it. And the more especially so because it enables us to refer it mystically to the victory of the Son of God over the champion of evil. I think Spurgeon is correct to interpret David's victory in this psalm as a type of and shadow of the victory of Jesus Christ over Satan. If that's pictured in this psalm as David's victory over Goliath, that is wonderful. Perhaps it's his victory over someone else. But regardless, it is certainly as a type and shadow pointing forward to the accomplishment of Christ, who is our victorious king. Now, the theme of this psalm is, of course, the kingdom of God and its victory over the wicked. The king of this kingdom is righteous and he judges justly with uprightness and by his judgment brings the wicked to their end. And in so doing, he is a refuge for the poor, the needy, the oppressed and afflicted. And what we will see, as Mr. Spurgeon has foreshown, is that the psalm is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the king of the kingdom of God, who will judge the wicked. He will answer the cry of the afflicted and will bring their enemies to nothing. And so let us first look at this psalm, uh, just going through it in its original context, and then we will see how this psalm points us To Christ, how as a type and shadow it points us forward to Christ. And then thirdly, how we can pray this psalm today or sing this psalm today. Now, before we begin, let me point out one last thing, which is that this psalm forms an acrostic. It begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and sort of goes through each letter explaining the wonders of God. And having said that, Psalm 9 does not actually complete the Hebrew alphabet by itself. The acrostic continues on into the next psalm, into Psalm 10. And because of this, some have suggested that Psalm 9 and 10 were originally just one psalm. Now the Septuagint, uh, which was or is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament... Uh, they have them together in the Septuagint as one psalm. Now, I'm not necessarily convinced that they only make up one psalm, but I do think that they are meant to go together as a pair of psalms, at least. But tonight, of course, uh, we will look solely at Psalm 9. Okay, so the psalm begins with King David, the psalmist Giving thanks and praising the Lord in verses 1 and 2. And this praise, you'll notice as you read it, this praise in these verses moves from the deed to the doer of the deed. David recounts the Lord's wonderful deeds. The word there is actually just his wonders, but uh, as many translations have it, his wonderful deeds. And that word there for wonders refers specifically or sometimes refers specifically to his miraculous works, his wonders, his signs and wonders, the things that he does miraculously or by his own sovereign hand. And so David is referring to the victory or victories that the Lord has given him in the past. These were worked by the sovereign hand, the miraculous supernatural hand of God. They were the Lord's deeds worked by his own hands. And so he is giving all credit to the Lord. His name, verse 2, is to be praised. He is the most high and is worthy of all praise. He is the doer of the wonderful deeds. And notice also that David says that he will give thanks for The deeds and for the doer of the deeds that he will give thanks to him with his whole heart. That should describe the ways in which we give thanks and praise to the Lord with our whole heart. And so I think we need to take David as an example for our lives here in worship. Not just our corporate worship services, but with our life as a praise to the Lord and seeking to give glory to the Lord. We probably do not give thanks and praise to the Lord with our lips as often as we should. And when and if we do, we probably do it half-heartedly. But David says that he will give thanks to the Lord with his whole heart. This should speak to the way that we worship God. We should do so with our whole heart. Now, beginning in verse 3, he speaks of the specific victory or perhaps victories to which he was referring. When his enemy turns back and he pursues them, they stumble and are destroyed because the Lord is with him. His presence, the presence of the Lord, causes them to stumble. And so David, the great king, gives all credit To the Lord, God is the true king. He is the king of kings who sits on his throne and has judged David's enemies. And in doing so has proved that David's cause was right, was just, was right. In verse 5, he speaks of the rebuke of the Lord causing the wicked nations to perish. And in David's mind are the nations that once inhabited Canaan. Israel has now, now at the time of King David, gone into the Promised Land, and by the Lord's leading, has caused those nations to perish. King David is, of course, the one that the Lord used to bring this to completion. They began many years before with Joshua leading them into the Promised Land and uh, bringing. Um, Destruction to the inhabitants of Canaan, but King David was credited with being the one who brought this work of the Lord to completion. Now, interestingly, the ruining of the wicked nations deals with those uh, deals with who they are. You'll notice uh, sort of a progression of things here. It deals with who they are, their accomplishments. Number two. And thirdly, their place in history. So, number one, who they are. Number two, their accomplishments. And number three, their place in history. For instance, at the end of verse 5, God's judgment deals with who he is judging. Their names, who they are, are blotted out. Their names are blotted out. In verse 6, it says their cities were rooted out. And so their achievements were undone. And then it goes on to say at the end of that verse, the very memory of them has perished so that they have no place in history to be recognized. But in contrast to those who have been undone, in contrast to those who have been blotted out and forgotten from all history, in contrast to them, the Lord, verse 7, sits enthroned forever. His kingdom will always remain. And from his throne, verse 8, he judges with righteousness and uprightness. In other words, he judges impartially, fairly, based upon what is right. And verse 9, he shifts from the wicked to those whom the wicked oppress. Because the Lord judges with uprightness, because he is an upright judge, he is a refuge. For those who seek justice from their oppressors. Where can we find that ultimately and completely in this world? We can't. Not perfectly. But with God, we have a perfect judge who always judges uprightly and perfectly, fairly, with uprightness. The nations in Canaan at times oppressed Israel and and made them slaves. But through David, the Lord has finally or is finally bringing judgment to all those nations. And Israel has a refuge in him. He is the just judge and he's bringing judgment against those who oppress his people. God does not forsake his people. He does not forsake those who trust in him. Therefore, verse 11, Israel should praise the Lord. They should sing praises to the one enthroned in Zion. Now, Zion, the mountain of the Lord, was in Jerusalem, where the tabernacle was taken and where eventually the temple would be built. And so from Zion, the Lord does not forget the cry of the afflicted. As their king, who judges perfectly, he does not forget his people Down to verses 13 and 14, we see that David proclaims why he is crying out to God. Why he desires to be delivered from the enemy. And notice, it's not for his own sake. It's for the glory of God. He wants the Lord to recognize his affliction from the enemy so that he can proclaim God's praises. It's not for his own renown as king of Israel. It's not for his own glory, but for the glory of God. And it seems evident from these verses that David even has future battles to engage in. He still needs the Lord to be with him, for it is the Lord alone who lifts him up from the gates of death. And so he's crying out for the Lord to continue to be with him. And from there, he talks about the foolishness of the wicked. Their own evil practices against God's people are what bring them to ruin. They sink in the pit that they themselves dug out. Their own foot gets caught in the trap that they themselves laid. These are hunting metaphors. Uh, the hunter is stalking its prey, but in the very devices that it uses to catch the prey, they, they stumble in themselves. And really, this was just like the Philistines. And so it might be right to suggests that uh, this is David's victory over Goliath uh, as they went on then to, to conquer uh, the rest of the Philistines there in battle on that day. There were other battles with the Philistines as well. And in all those occasions, the Philistines uh, were the ones that were typically the instigators or the aggressors against Israel. They were the ones, as hunters, seeking out Israel as their prey. But all those encounters ended in the destruction of the Philistines and not of Israel. In verses 17 through 18, he points out that though for a time it appears the needy ones, the poor ones, that is, the afflicted, the oppressed ones, the forgotten, that that they appear to be forgotten, that is. But in, in, in reality, they are not. They are not forgotten. It is those who forget God who are forgotten. They will return to Sheol. That is, they will inhabit the realm of the death. And in light of this, David prays for the Lord to arise so that the nations might be judged. You see, again, it seems as if there's more. There's just a few more battles to undergo to finally root out all of the nations. He says for the Lord to arise and that language of arise asking the Lord to arise is language used when the Ark of the Covenant would go before Israel into battle. The Lord would rise up and that was symbolized through the Ark of the Covenant leading Israel into battle. And the Lord would rise up and go into battle, bringing judgment against the nations. His presence would bring forth fear and remind the nations that they were mere men. Okay, so that's sort of a, a sketch, uh, a bit of an explanation, verse by verse explanation of our psalm. As David wrote it, uh, recounting David's experience, In his life, as he wrote this psalm. But it was written as a type and a shadow of something greater than David's mere circumstances. David was the king of Israel, but he was a type and shadow of Christ, who is the king of the kingdom of God. And so we can look at Christ as the fulfillment of this psalm, really from two different respects. We see sort of two different angles of this psalm. And so we can look at Christ fulfilling it sort of from two different angles. First, we can see it from him as the afflicted one who suffers. Right? David speaks about uh, those who are afflicted, those who are oppressed, the poor, the lowly. And so we can look at it first as Christ as the one who suffers and is afflicted. But secondly, we can look at it as Christ being the one in whom victory is accomplished. Christ, of course, we know, suffered at the hands of the wicked. But even when they pursued him, they were the ones who stumbled, were they not? As verse 3 of Psalm discusses at different points, Uh, We recognize through this psalm that though the enemy is the oppressor, they are the ones who stumble. They are the ones who are caught in their own trap. In verse 3, where it talks about when they turned back, it is the enemies who stumble. One commentator uh, pointed out the fulfillment of this in Jesus' life, and here's what he wrote. Was there ever a prophecy more pointed than this? Or ever an event more strikingly fulfilled than when Christ's enemies came to apprehend him in the garden. Referring to the garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus, by a word speaking, caused them to go backward and fall upon their faces to the earth. Was there ever an instance in the annals of the world of such an event taking place by the breath of the mouth? Reader, I pray you turn to the account of this in the gospel, John 18, 5, and 6. So he's speaking of the fulfillment of this as occurring in John chapter 18, verses 5 and 6. And so what do those verses say? Well, Judas and the soldiers had come to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus asked them, who are you seeking? In John 18, beginning in verse 5, says, They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so here, the word of Christ causes the wicked men to stumble, to fall to their faces. Just as David prophesied in Psalm 9.3, Christ is, of course, you see, the righteous one in Psalm 9, who is afflicted by the wicked, the one that they pursue. We know what went on just after this. They arrested Jesus, and he was brought before the high priest. He was persecuted there. He was later taken before Pontius Pilate and eventually conv- convicted uh, to be crucified. On the cross. And he was persecuted. He was afflicted. The righteous one was afflicted. By the hands of the wicked. And so we see Christ as the fulfillment of this psalm. In that he is the one who suffers by the hands of the wicked. But Christ is also the victorious king who conquers the wicked. He is the king of the kingdom of God, and therefore he is the judge who will judge with uprightness and righteousness. In fact, Paul proclaims in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, that the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because... He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, Jesus is the one who will bring God's judgment. And he will judge with righteousness. Judge the world in righteousness. And so we see the one that the wicked afflicted Even afflicted unto death will be the one to bring them judgment. And this is proven by his resurrection from the dead. We see here how the wicked set their own trap. They put him to death, yet the very one they put to death will be their judge. They will be put to ruin. Their accomplishments will be no more. And the memory of them will be forgotten. And not just those there on that day, but all of the wicked which put Christ to the cross. Which would include all of us. But only those who have the righteousness of Christ through faith will be saved from such judgment. The book of Revelation prophesies of Christ the King judging the world. If you have your Bibles open... I want to encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. I have a number of verses here to read for us. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. We see in a vision of John the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 9 in many ways. Beginning in verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So this passage shows Jesus to be the sovereign king who brings judgment upon the nations. In Psalm 9, David is the king and God is the one who is the judge. But Revelation 19 depicts Jesus as both God and king. And at his return, he will execute judgment and will fully bring justice and righteousness with him. His kingdom will be entirely established at that time, and all who oppose him will come to ruin. That's the picture we see in the Old Testament of Israel being led by Joshua or being led by King David and putting the nations to ruin, inheriting the promised land. Ultimately, that is a picture of the end times. It's a picture of when Christ returns And puts the nations to utter ruin. Who judges them justly. And at which time those who are in Christ will receive the promised land. Of the new heavens and the new earth. Where only righteousness will enter. And so when we pray this prayer today. We pray for Christ's kingdom to come in full. As those who are afflicted by the kingdom of this world, we pray for Christ to come and to judge with equity and righteousness. We have been, those of us who are in Christ have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of God's Son. But we still dwell in this world, in the kingdom of this world. We are not Of the world, but we are in the world. We dwell amongst the kingdom of this world. And so we pray for Christ to come and to judge with righteousness. In Psalm 9, Israel was the poor, the needy, and the afflicted being oppressed by the nations that inhabited Canaan. Now, I mentioned that we would see Christ as fulfilling this psalm as the afflicted one who suffers. And that is certainly true. However, we as the church are also part of the fulfillment of this psalm. And this is so because we are the body of Christ who now undergoes suffering just as he once did. What the head once endured, the body too will endure. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 24, Paul spoke about filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And by that, he didn't mean that, the, that, that Christ's sufferings were incomplete to accomplish our redemption. He was simply referring to the fact that we who are united to Christ, that is the church, must now undergo our suffering, the suffering that still awaits us. And as the church, we are members of the kingdom of God and not of the kingdom of this world, not of it. We are in it, but not of it. And as the kingdom of this world ruled by Satan oppresses us and afflicts us. You see, not only does it tempt us to sin, but we are also exposed to the effects of sin and the fall. And so we are the poor, we are the needy, we are the afflicted, who are oppressed by this world, uh, uh, oppressed and afflicted by this fallen world. In other words, those who pray Psalm 9 are those whom Jesus describes in the Beatitudes. When Jesus speaks about the poor, the lowly, the afflicted, the persecuted, the oppressed, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, the lowly. See, these are those who are God's people that dwell in the kingdom of this world. and They mourn over sin. They mourn over the fallenness of this world. They are the poor in spirit. They are the meek or the lowly. Jesus also says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, we often interpret this As those who long for Christ's righteousness to be imputed to them. uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ to be imputed to them. Or, Or sometimes we might think of it as those who long to be, who hunger and thirst to be conformed to Christ's righteousness. But it also means blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Christ. The King. To judge with righteousness, to long for justice, to long for righteous judgment, to long for the king to return and to bring a place, a world, a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness will be. In the Beatitudes, Jesus also says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 9. Beloved, we can only pray this psalm if we are those who have repented of our sins and turned to Christ. We are all wicked apart from Christ. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are only considered righteous if we have the righteousness of Christ. Being in Christ, we can then pray the prayer of Psalm 9, asking for Christ to bring His righteous judgment, that is to return and to judge with righteousness and uprightness. Again, when that day comes, the wicked will find ruin once for all. And Christ will bring us, those who are in Him, to the new heavens and the new earth, where we will find only righteousness to dwell. May that day come quickly. To him be all praise and glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ the King and for his righteousness. That he lived righteously, perfectly, and having laid down his life and risen again, you have made him the one who will bring judgment to the world. We thank you that we can trust in you to be faithful, to fulfill your promises, to bring judgment upon the nations. Lord, we pray that You will be glorified in such judgment. Lord, we can't comprehend all things. We cannot comprehend all of your ways. But we do know that you use this for your own glory. And we don't seek to hate anyone uh, and seek their harm. But we do seek that you be glorified in the judgment that you bring. But we also, O Lord, pray that you would be glorified in saving some for yourself. For we know that justice is done then as well for their sins and their judgment was laid upon Christ. And justice was met. Lord, we thank you for this grace and this mercy that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. For we know that we deserve from our sins, every single one of us. Not just those who commit really, really, really bad sins, but all of us who have committed any sin at all deserve your wrath and eternal condemnation. But you have saved us. And so may we praise you and give you thanks with our whole hearts that you might receive all glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.